This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Department of Housing and Urban Development hands out tens of billions of dollars in grants every year and contracts. Yet the agency's fraud risk management program is still in its early stages. A recent Inspector General report found major weaknesses in HUD's fraud risk management program. Elliot Johnson Jr. is a senior management analyst in HUD's office of the chief risk officer. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about a new tool that's going to help mature the agency's processes and, they hope, reduce fraud. The deputy CFO at the time looked at the type of money that HUD would get, uh, supplemental funding they were receiving in, in the billions. As you can imagine, with this stuff that's going on in Puerto Rico, the hurricane hits, you have to respond quickly. You get this funding coming. You want to take a look at what's the impact of the risk associated with this funding when you're not upstaffing to, to deal with it. So he came about with the idea of creating something called a, our front-end risk assessment policy, which the tool is also known as the FIRA tool. And it was phenomenal from the standpoint of the oversight community because it uh, looked at the risk associated with the program supplemental funding and the stresses put on a particular program area, but it was cumbersome as heck for the program folks. Because when you work on a program, your process is trying to make sure you get safe, decent, affordable housing for folks. And you're doing something to assess the risk, and you're saying, this is taking energy and time away from me to do what I really need to do as opposed to doing this something that oftentimes would end up with a 300-page doorstop. Uh, so about 2018 time frame, a decision was made that let's, how can we revise and update this policy so that it, so that it, is, it is as useful, easy, and, and less cumbersome on the program areas to complete in, in a time frame that's reasonable so that the, it's actually completed before we start drawing down the funds. And so through the revision, we worked very closely with getting a significant input uh, from, from, the IG, uh, from our IG by bouncing it back off. We would send it to them to look at it once we work on that aspect of it. It's uh, heavy in the green book, control, internal control guidance. It has principles from the ERM principles in it. It has COSO in it. It has ISO. And you took something that took oftentimes three to six months to complete and re- re-engineered it so that a program area could really accomplish the, that work in six weeks. And so if you think about the time that it takes when you get the supplemental funding that comes into an, an, an our agency, the first thing that, that, that happens once it gets passed is that the folk, pro, folks in the program areas have to deal with their attorneys to go through a process to figure out how they get, what type of language needs to be in the NOFA to, to start addressing to get the funds out the door. So in, the, in about the time it takes to do that, um, uh, it takes about uh, you could complete a front-end risk assessment so that it actually you're actually able to assess what your risk may be you also, as well as the places where you're not just from the standpoint of fraud risk, but if you need more staff, if you, it, uh, as, as I said, it has a 21 different uh, categories from compliance to uh, systems to reputational. And so that, since 2019, we've done roughly 20 of them. Our oversight community bought into it on the front of it, and it's been incredible uh, because we've got nothing but outstanding feedback from GAO and our IG off of the, off the assessments. So this is not necessarily a technology tool. This is like a, a tool in the sense of a process tool to improve the speed, the efficiency of the process to do that front-end risk assessment or front-end fraud risk assessment. What it is is we have a policy that's published as an internal HUD policy. And the tool aspect of it is uh, reduced it down through six or seven attachments from A to, to F. Uh, the, the meat of it would be where it allows you to look through each one of the risk categories, uh, assess whether they're high, medium, or low, 
and once you complete that throughout all of the categories, you can put in appropriate risk response to control, uh, to address any of the risks, uh, the result is medium and high. And so what it really ends up being is like an itinerary for how you're going to propose to spend the money down and ensure that you get it safely through to the end of the funding. The absolute difference between the prior version and this one is that folks are actually using it after they complete it. They refer to it like a, uh, they refer back and forth, forth to it like the map when they're driving across the country. And where it was before, no one would ever take the time to look through 300 pages or something to try to find where they saw the risk. The other, and the bigger thing is, is, is you're providing confidence to the, the auditors in the event that they come in and see something and if they go back and that, uh, if an event occurs, they can see that you've cap- uh, captured it, you have a way that you propose to address it, and you, you're never going to catch every eliminate every single risk across the, the, the board, but it, it's something that is viable and you can uh, uh, make cor- course corrections as you're moving through a process. Speaking of assessments, you also mentioned some pilots that's going on on a fraud risk assessment uh, tool. Yeah. You said that you're going to look at eventually all 16 programs and then also uh, from a 50,000-foot view. Can you just talk a little bit about what those pilots are? Well, we have a fraud risk assessment uh, tool that was created about 2020 and a process that we are uh, we used, uh, did an assessment of our of, uh, the uh, folks in yeah in contracts to assess them and try to identify some weaknesses uh, in areas where they could do some improvement across to see what vulnerabilities they had. That went really well. Real quick, what goes into such an assessment, generally speaking? Is it, are you looking at the same five factors, 10 factors for each program, or is just get, can you, can you go the next level down of what would something look like? The, the models, both the fear has heavily influenced by GAO's fraud risk framework. The fraud risk assessment tool is Really, it's really that's at the say if the uh, fear takes a a, a thirty thousand foot look when it's looking at uh, the issue of fraud risk. When you get down to the, the the fraud risk assessment tool, that's at the ground level. So it's extensively and completely focused largely on risk, uh, fraud risk. Uh, we pick up other risks that are inside the program areas with our annual risk profile uh, process, which covers all risk factors and oftentimes aligns is aligns with the same process view that you look at with the front end risk assessment. The difference being that when we do our annual risk assessment of all HUD programs, we're taking a look at them from the enterprise level, meaning those issues that are affecting the enterprise. And when we do the front end risk assessment, we're drilling down into a specific program inside a program area. So that's that's been it's going to be stressed because it's either new or it's uh, uh, triggered a significant amount of funding that requires a, that, that level of attention. So that's kind of the difference, the, the, the actual uh, focus. And then from a pilot perspective, you mentioned we always hear the term pilot and get very excited, but is it something that you're, have you applied it to how many of the program areas? You said eventually 16, but has, has it been through one or two or five, or can you tell us? And then what are some of the benefits of going through the pilot? The benefits of going through the pilot was to let us see if it works. And now that we know that it works, we finally have a, a support contract in place that uh, will soon to be announced. We have that for five years, and we can get rolling and provide the type of support to program areas for them to be able to do it on an annual basis. So we'll have the, each one of the program areas, much like with the risk profile process, will be able to assess the risk exposure as it relates to fraud at the program level. But from a department level, when we move up to the enterprise level, we can overlay each one of the programs and develop and understand where we are from a maturity part, portion. That there, it's given that the, you know, HUD's got 16 uh, program offices, and some the ones that deal with banking 
as an example, like FHA or, or mortgages have a different risk, uh, risk tolerance than, say, somebody who deals with uh, things like the folks who do uh, support stuff over in the OCIL. So each one of them has a, has a different tolerance for risk, and we're assessing them at, based upon where their tolerance is, and they can align it off of it. Elliot Johnson, Jr., a senior management analyst in the Department of Housing and Urban Development's Office of the Chief Risk Officer. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply. 